Hello and welcome to another edition of Greening the News with the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, or IEMA. I'm Sarah Mukherjee and I'm IEMA's Chief Executive. We help train and support nearly 17,500 members in more than 100 countries around the world in their professional journey in environment and sustainability. We also develop the policy our members wish to see at international and national level. The global pandemic has thrown into sharp focus how some people have fared better than others. For those in developed countries with professional jobs, now double jabbed and with space to work from home, COVID has meant doing their jobs with less time commuting and more to spend with friends and family, rediscovering the work-life balance. However, for many millions, those who care for others, who supply and sell food and basic provisions, who drive trains and buses, and who clean our buildings and cities. It has meant working through the height of the crisis, often at considerable risk. And there are still many millions in less developed nations who are waiting for their chance to be vaccinated. Young people all over the world who tend to be less affected by the illness have found themselves giving up a huge amount to protect older people in their communities. For example, in the UK, the youth unemployment rate for April to June 2021 was 13.1% compared to the unemployment rate of 4.7% for the whole population. And the same trend can be seen in countries across the world. So today we will be asking what the impact of these high rates of unemployment will be on young people and what do young people need to gain the skills to equip them for the green and sustainable jobs of the future. Well, in a moment, we'll be speaking with two experts in this field. But first, here's a roundup of the news with Andre Farah. As the critically important Glasgow Climate Conference COP26 approaches, the political temperature is rising significantly. The Prime Minister's recent visit to New York had the stated aim of galvanising progress towards a new climate deal. And progress is certainly needed. Indeed, Mr Johnson himself puts the chances of landing the G7's pledge to make $100 billion in private and public finance available to developing countries at only 60%. The diplomatic shockwaves following the Security and Defence Pact announced by Australia, the USA and the UK may have unpredictable consequences for climate negotiations and China's approach to COP26, with as yet no confirmation that President Xi will attend the conference. Recognising that COP26 represents the last best chance to get runaway climate change under control, Sky Sports and Tottenham Hotspur Football Club teamed up to host the first top-flight net-zero match with their recent game against Chelsea. The match saw both Sky and Spurs tackling energy use, transport options and matchday food as much as possible while seeking to offset the remaining emissions. It will be interesting to see the results of their efforts. On the pitch, Chelsea eventually ran out 3-0 winners. The task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets has established a new watchdog. This independent governance body aims to bring greater quality and integrity to the rapidly expanding and often controversial area of carbon markets and offsetting. The Competitions and Marketing Authority is calling time on misleading green claims as it publishes a new green claims code. 
The CMA will be carrying out a full review of green claims in 2022 with the aim of ensuring that businesses do not benefit from greenwash and ensuring that environmental claims are truthful, accurate, clear and unambiguous. The Diverse Sustainability Initiative, convened by AIMA, now numbers over 50 member organisations and is featured in an article written for Business Green by AIMA's Chief Executive, Sarah Mukherjee. Reflecting on her own experience and the environment sector, she highlights the scale of the work needed to promote diversity of thought and experience, without which it is doomed to fail in the long term. In another sign of the gathering momentum around the climate emergency, the BBC have appointed Justin Rowlett as their first ever climate editor. He takes up his role with immediate effect and he will be hitting the ground running from his base in Cardiff. Well, joining me now to talk about youth unemployment and supporting skills development for a greener future are two people with extensive experience in this area. Charlotte Bonner uh, is from the Education and Training Foundation, an expert body for professional development and standards in further education and training in England. Their role is to design, develop and deliver continuous professional development or CPD for teachers, leaders and trainers to support government policy and meet sector needs. Mohammed Mohamud is the AIMA Futures Steering Group member and an ambassador for Fast Futures. And for those of you who don't know, our AIMA's Futures Group is for our bright and brilliant young professionals at the start of their journey. Charlotte and Mohammed, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. Um, first of all, if I could ask you, Charlotte, um, from your experience, and obviously you've been working through the pandemic along with everyone else, what have you seen as the impact, the potential impact on young people of the unemployment and the, the lack of job opportunities during the pandemic years? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, young people as a demographic are incredibly diverse. You know, some, some young people will have coped very well throughout the pandemic. Some young people will have been you know, very negatively uh, impacted by the pandemic pandemic and I think recognizing that there's a, an awful lot of, of difference amongst that kind of youth group is important obviously you know you mentioned in your introduction some of the issues with regards to, to youth and employment which you know that's linked to long-term reduction in wages it's linked to increased chances of subsequent periods of unemployment in the future it's, it's linked to poorer health outcomes so we know that the impacts of unemployment on on individuals it's is really significant and then from a kind of a a community perspective similarly kind of wider social and economic costs when when youth unemployment is is high i think the the pandemic for me has has shown you know change can happen really 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 quickly if there is enough um, buy-in if there is enough political will i think if you'd have told for example the the academic community two years ago that they'd all be teaching online within six months nobody would have believed you but you know there's been a huge um marker that we can change things quickly when we want to and that gives me quite a lot of hope for sustainability gives me a lot of hope for um, green jobs um, transitions. Mohammed, I wonder if I perhaps turn to you I mean thinking and I know that anybody who has regular contact with young people in their personal or professional lives will know that it's been a tough couple of years if you're a student if you're a graduate if you're moving into your first job I mean how have you and your friends found the last couple of years in terms of developing your skills and getting your qualifications? 
Well, thank you for having me first. And yeah, it's been it's been difficult. Like Charlotte said, there's a there's a wide, I guess, spectrum of how people have been affected. But just sort of in my personal life. So when the pandemic hit, I was in a gap year and I was trying to figure out what to do in my life. So I just got a job offer to teach in the UAE and I was scheduled to go to Tanzania for a summer project to sort of work on livelihood projects so I was very excited had everything sort of mapped out I sort of knew what I was going to do and then of course the pandemic hit and then all of that was sort of taken away so then I had I guess this was around maybe February time um, whenever the first proper lockdown hit and I had some time to sort of self-reflect but during that time just around me I saw a lot of my friends really suffered sort of mental health problems just in terms of just loss of confidence and then not knowing what to do and where to go from there um so in my community for example a lot of people that are sort of first generation they depend on getting income as early as possible not just for them themselves but it's because they have people that depend on them at home family and then also abroad so a lot of times people that come here first generation they have sort of the whole their whole family's expectations on their shoulder so they're they feel really pressured to you know make money as soon as possible and be in employment as soon as possible so with that sort of delay I think that really did you know have an effect on on a lot of young people especially those that were around me but it's also an opportunity though so I don't want to just sort of just concentrate on the negative but there definitely was people who were very negatively affected and you're absolutely right to say that. And we will I think about the opportunities uh, in a minute. But that point you make about mental health is really, uh, really important, isn't it? Because, Charlotte, I think we've all found, and I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I was quite surprised. I mean, I've been working since dinosaurs roamed the earth, frankly. And, you know, <laughs> I, thought, I thought I was fairly resilient. But I did find myself, I think, in that third lockdown in the UK where, it was dark and it was in the middle of winter and, you know, it just, it was very difficult to be resilient um, in the face of, you know, quite, quite big pressures. And Charlotte, I'm just wondering, is that something that you saw with the people that you're working with and, and were there any ways that you could mitigate that? Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, the youth mental health crisis precedes the coronavirus pandemic. I think there was already a, a, a really significant issue with, with rising mental health issues uh, amongst youth populations and something that the education sector had recognised that, you know, that it needed to take action on. And I think to, the, the pandemic has only exacerbated that for all of the reasons that, that Mohammed shared. I think the other thing is that there's also an, a recognition of when young people are really engaged with sustainability issues, one of the reactions to, to understanding the sheer scale of sustainability challenges we face is, again, a, a negative impact on one's mental health. So I think that's a bit of a, an apex of the storm, really, at the moment, when, when there's an increasingly sustainable literate population, there's a global pandemic and, uh, and a preceding mental health crisis. I think that it's, um, it is a really significant issue that faces not just young people, but their communities and their education providers as well. So, so Charlotte, do you think then that, I mean, we, we talk a lot more about mental health than we used to, which is has to be a good thing, but should there be some specific provision that's part of their training or there's ready access to 
to be able to support young people with their mental health journey as much as their academic journey. And um, Charlotte, if I could back to ask you first and then move to Mohammed to ask. Yeah, of course. There are organisations that are really working very, very hard to support young people and their education providers in supporting youth mental health and positive uh, mental health. So some name drops, there's Student Minds, um, a student mental health charity. There's Think Positive, which uh, is led by NUS Scotland. And I know that the Office for Students last year invested quite heavily in, in higher education students' mental health support services. But of course, that's one, one segment of the education sector and looking at how we can actually support positive student mental health, uh, learner mental health, youth mental health across, um, you know, the young people spectrum not just those that they're at university I think is, is really important but there is there's good work going on that we can we can learn from we can replicate we can scale up things like the university mental health charter things like the, the support that, that those organizations that, that I mentioned so I think there's a lot that needs to be done but there's also a lot being done that, that needs recognition I think. Uh, Mohammed, I mean, you mentioned, and you're a super positive person. You're always looking for the, the learning opportunities in uh, sometimes even challenging situations. I mean, do you think that you and your your colleagues, you know, young professionals like yourselves, are learning the skills and the tools to keep that mental health in in tip top shape, or is there more that could be done to support you? I would say just in terms of the general society, we've, we have really come a long way and, and mental health is a bigger topic than ever. And there are definitely modes of helping young people and, and there is access to it. But sometimes I think it can be difficult to access just because of not knowing. So, for example, some of the, the organisations that Charlotte mentioned there, I wasn't aware of. So I think... There could be more done, and but there definitely is a lot of good work being done. Yeah, I think it's difficult because there are so many external factors that affect this, and there's so many factors to consider. But yeah, I think I think more could be done to to raise awareness of of the opportunities available to help young people. I think it's I think you're absolutely right, Mohammed. There's a there's a piece around kind of raising awareness of what support is available. That's absolutely critical. But I think the other thing is that it's really an area that needs needs more significant investment in terms of student counselling services, in terms of support for those who provide the mental health and wellbeing support to expand their services. You know, in a lot of cases, their you know their support services are are facing the same challenges that organisations across the country are in terms of the impact of the pandemic, the impact on their staff um, themselves, for example. So, you know, for far too many people, they don't have that support available to them. So it is an area of investment need as well as awareness raising. I think. Thank you. I'd like to maybe talk a little bit about people moving into the office for the first time and then address this point about green skills, if I may. So that first bit, so we've talked about at university student life. I've heard from a lot of employers that, I mean, obviously we work with an, an awful lot of corporate partners in IEMA, but a lot of employers have said they are concerned about a move to hybrid or in sometimes entirely digital office working means that it's sometimes difficult for people in moving into their first jobs to understand the kind of you know the etiquette the language of the office and you know how teams work and how meetings work um Mohammed, I mean do you think that's a a fair thing to say or should we just accept that this is what life will office life will look like and so we have to get used to the online as well as the in-person 
I think it's all about finding the right balance. I think there's definitely some gems to be found in person experiences that you just cannot get online. So I think it's important that we we really try and make sure that we have a hybrid model that recognizes that. So I think that's really important. I think a lot of young people like myself are really look forward to the office hours and being able to sort of see the office dynamics and seeing how that plays out. So I think it's important for young people just from their own perspective to have that experience. So I think it's good to to definitely integrate that in. We of course have to be mindful of our situation and the pandemic and understand that it can't be 99% in phase. I think that a balance needs to be found. And I think if we can communicate, if employers can communicate with their employees to find out what the best sort of protocol will be for that, I think I think we can find something that appeases everyone. Charlotte, I mean, obviously, you know, there's always another demand on teachers and uh, those who are in a, a educational role. There's always another demand on your time. You, uh, can you do this and can you do this? And oh, by the way, could you do that thing over there as well? But this move to a virtual, a digital, you know, less face-to-face contact, it's a very significant and profound potential shift and is there something that you think that the people you work with could do to reflect that in the teaching and training they give? I think it's a really I mean it's a a broad question I mean teaching teaching staff um, educators uh, across the country across the world have had to really adapt very quickly and some educational setups uh, have adapted more easily than others you know for it's it's perhaps easier not in all cases, but it's perhaps easier to run a seminar with eight students um, discussing a particular topic online than it is to to teach somebody how to build a house online, for example. So I think, again, it depends on the subject specialism. It depends on the, the kind of operating model of the education provider as to how, you know, how easy that route has been. But it has really encouraged people to, to start questioning their teaching and professional practice. It's helped people really think about what digital age teaching facilities look like. There's been a lot of investment in, for example, virtual reality simulators, for example, in particular, in some particular industries. But again, it comes back to that balance piece and kind of what people are getting out of their education, I think. And for some, that is about the community. It is about the the pastoral care you get um, when you're part of an education organisation. It's about the the co-curricular opportunities that are presented to you. So I am a firm believer that teaching and learning can be done really, really well well online and that is absolutely appropriate for for some subject matters and for some courses uh, some qualification routes and I don't think that's going anywhere but I also don't think that this is the demise of the kind of the 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 academic or the training institution either because I think that that kind of face-to-face provision is hugely valuable and teachers have had to really up their digital skills and again there's things out there to help them so the ETF for example provides the enhanced digital platform to help people enhance their own digital skills to bring that to their teaching and learning practice for example but there's still a long way to go before we've got that hybrid model completely right I think. So it might be a good point as you mentioned given a really clear assessment of how that move is happening in terms of the digital offer in terms maybe think about in terms of the green skills offer as well. Most developed countries in the world are talking about green skills, green jobs. What do you think Charlotte if I could ask you first maybe the challenges for the UK in developing those green skills? 
So I think, it, again, it depends on your perspective. I think there's a really huge demand for green skills from business and industry. It doesn't feel like there's a month that goes by without another policy briefing from a trade body or professional body saying, yep, green skills are really important to our industry's future. There's a really strong workforce demand from the education sector. The research that we've undertaken shows that teachers really believe in the power of education to help develop solutions to sustainability challenges. There's big demand from learners saying that we absolutely want these skills we see them as, as critical to our to our future in terms of the challenges to get there personally I think it's about the balance between how the education system um, teaches the right skills for industry needs now and in the future so that kind of symbiotic relationship between business and education and I think the other thing that is increasingly apparent is that actually looking at how we upskill teaching staff and educators to make sure that they are well equipped to deliver green skills education is absolutely critical. And that will then translate into you know, the embedding of green skills across a range of curriculum areas and subject specialisms. But to me, the, the two things are how do we make sure we're teaching the right things and how do we make sure that our teachers are well equipped to do that? Mohammed, when we talked, and as you know, we at IMA did a virtual work experience for some uh, amazing young students uh, from across the country and you very kindly were part of that and did a, a brilliant session but they said to us or some of them said to us when we talked to them about what a careers advice were given in terms of green skills they were told well, do geography and we you know, we know the whole point of our EMA is to show that really there are so many disciplines now which lead you towards a path in, in sustainability and, and the environment I mean do you think the advice that you were given was was comprehensive enough or you know should we be doing more to show young people just how many paths there are to a, a life in environment and sustainability yeah no i think that's a really really good point i think when i was so i did my bachelor's in biology and when before that i was considering sort of mathematical careers and i'd never really come across sustainability and whenever I did, it was always paired with geography. I think sustainability is such an exciting, you know, sector. And then when people do find out the range of disciplines that it covers, I think people do also then get excited about the sector as a whole. But yeah, I think it is really important to, to, to teach young kids that every sector, pretty, pretty much every sector that you can think of, can have an element of green skills involved with it and can benefit from green skills. I personally definitely wasn't shown that. I wasn't, you know, demonstrated that. So when, when I did find this out, I thought, well, wow, I, I certainly have to share this with others, which is why I, you know, joined the Speakers for School um, event. Um, so, yeah, I think we can definitely do more and we, and we need to do more because we, we, we definitely are bereft of green skills and we need to equip our young people with these. So, Mohammed, I know that you know, we've talked a lot and you've talked very fluently um, about some of the barriers that exist for people from different communities in the UK to access training. There are apprenticeships, of course, uh, green school boot camps, all sorts of things the government are, are looking at developing. But what do you think um, we, we could be done or what should be done to ensure that people from all backgrounds, and we know how undiverse uh, the environment and sustainability sector is, but people from all backgrounds can access 
this sort of training. Are that, do you think there's any, you know, there are two or three easy things that we could do to, to get that moving? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult question. I think one is definitely just raising more awareness about the range of green skills. So I think a lot of people who want to go into careers, for example, let's say in finance, construction, I think explaining to them that sustainability and green skills can also be found within those areas and, you know, developing programs that showcase this at a relatively early age. So I think around sort of end of high school, college time, I think just exposure to these skills and the potential careers is is a really big thing. I think if I had had something like that where I could see the opportunities that were in the field, I think I would have been more inclined to, to following that career path earlier on. So I think, yeah, programs that are developed early on and exposure, I think, is 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 definitely a key thing to to sort of try and develop. And you made the point really, really interesting point earlier on about you know the pressure on you know, brilliant young people from some communities to start earning money because you're supporting your family, you're perhaps supporting a family from the country of your heritage. Do you think that that is a barrier? And if so, what could we do to make sure that we're not losing out on some of that talent, which will go to, as you rightly say, you know, to the place where you can earn the most money the fastest? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's why the exposure is so important, because if someone wants to go into finance, for example, because they want to make more money quicker, and they think the only way to do that is through finance, for example, just exposure to the fact that they can still go into sustainability and be in finance and still make money and letting them know that that's still an opportunity is is vitally important because like you said yeah it's it's definitely a barrier and it's something that stops a lot of young people in my community from considering it as a career because they just immediately think sustainability geography that means working in the field you know looking at trees etc etc so they they just have a very sort of narrow viewpoint of what sustainability is and green skills are so I think like I said the exposure is so 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 key yeah and as you said it's it's around finance and law and you know those sort of areas which are prized yeah I speak as someone who's been through that a similar process myself you know because I was rubbish at physics I couldn't be a doctor therefore I had to go do a law degree obviously (laughs) because it doesn't (laughs) That's the only other alternative. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, no, that that's definitely it. Yeah, doctor, law, and those sort of careers are, are what are really pushed for the people in my community, sort of first-generation migrants. Yeah, exactly. So, sorry, Charlotte, were you going to...? Yeah, I was just going to come back to that, um, the piece about whether or not green jobs are a separate thing, whether green skills are a separate thing, because I think all the subject specialisms that have just been mentioned in terms of law, in terms of medicine, in terms of finance, as well as geography, as well as sciences, but also the vocational subjects as well, that actually are really important for us making the technical changes that we need to our society to make 
making sure we meet our decarbonisation goals, our biodiversity goals, our wider sustainability goals. You know, all of those have a really strong interrelationship with um, the solutions we need for sustainable futures. And actually, you know, I, I genuinely believe that all subject specialisms can link to sustainability well, and that we need to make sure that that learners, regardless of their place of education, regardless of their level of education, regardless of their subject of education, are developing the the knowledge, but also the skills and the attributes and the characteristics to be able to make change with regards to sustainability in their lives. Because you know, the decisions that you make as an accountant, the decisions that you make as a lawyer, whether they're in your professional practice or your personal life, can make a significant impact. And I'm not alone in that belief. You know, 94% of respondents uh, from across the FE workforce recently told us that they believe all UK learners should be taught about sustainability issues as a curriculum entitlement. So regardless of what they what they study. And I think it's really important when we think about how we're going to achieve the sustainability goals we've set ourselves. It's not just going to be the geographers and the scientists that get us out of you know, the challenges that we face. It's not something that we can say, you know, it's fine. The geographers and the scientists will sort us out. Actually, it's a universal challenge and therefore the solutions are universal too. And therefore there needs to be a universal understanding. That is a, an excellent point. Thank you, Charlotte. And gosh, look at the time. It's uh, We're almost up to time and uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Before we finish, though, um, I would like to ask both of you, often when you are actually in a situation working very closely, there is one thing that you think, gosh, if only that could happen. It's so simple and yet you could make such a difference. I think we've all been there, haven't we? Is there anything that either of you, you know, can really see that could be a relatively easy win to get some reasonable traction I mean Charlotte is there anything that you come across in your professional life you think we could do that with can I be really cheeky and have oh, three three is the magic number isn't it so um <laughs> firstly investment in um educators whether that's initial teacher training whether that's continued professional development for existing educators to make sure that people have the skills and the confidence to be able to teach about sustainability well regardless of who they're teaching and what they're teaching Secondly, I'd look at the curriculum and what are the specifications to which we're encouraging people to be taught. And that's where you know business comes in, particularly. They, they really do have an influence over what's being taught, especially in the vocational world. And thirdly, um, some support for our education providers to really um, invest in their campuses. We've got a lot of really leaky campuses um, and people are crying out for support with that. So can I get the technical solutions fixed? Because they're, they're relatively easy, um, but they need a bit of cash. Mohammed, I think it would be not fair if I didn't give you three, but please don't feel you have to give us. I, I won't. I won't be as cheeky. I'll go for two. I think. I think fair two enough. will be enough. So I think one is really understanding what employers want from graduates coming up now, and really understand what skills is it they want from new upcoming graduates, and then ensuring that we give our young people those skills. And then the other, which sits quite closely to my heart, is allowing for a more diverse workforce into green skills and really concentrating on ensuring that we have, you know, sustainability is all about diversity, diversity of thought, right? diversity of solutions. So I think it's important we have a diverse workforce as well, with it being, you know, you know second least diverse out of 200, you know, professions. I think it's definitely an area which we need to focus on and do better in, but a lot of good work is being done and you know I am looking forward in, in, in that regard as well so I, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future. Oh thank you very much yes and you're absolutely right I mean, 
there is ample evidence to suggest that diverse organisations are more resilient and more prepared for, uh, I mean, let's face it, you know, what is a very uncertain world. I don't think many of us could have predicted what has happened in the last 18 months or so. Charlotte Bonner from the Education and Training Foundation and Mohammed Mahmoud from our own IEMA Futures Steering Group. Thank you both so much for joining us on what was an absolutely fascinating Greening the News. Thanks very much indeed for listening and we'll see you next month.